Good afternoon and welcome. Please do take a seat. Welcome. You found your way to a public meeting of the Evangelical Union. Uh, my name is Byron Smith. I'm the president for the next couple of weeks uh, of the EU. And uh, we're a group of Christians who believe that not only is there a God who exists and who created the world, but that he cares about uh, the world so much that he has done something about the problems in the world. Uh, he loves the world so much that he sent his son, his son Jesus Christ, not just so that we can know about him, um, not just so that we can be inspired to live better lives, but in order to do something about the evil in the world. Uh, and paradoxically, that happened uh, through his death on the cross. And so we meet together uh, as Christians to encourage one another with that fact, uh, but also because that's an exciting message. It's good news. Uh, and so we want to share that and give the university an opportunity of hearing that. Uh, and this week in particular is a great week if you're a, a guest or a visitor, and so in particular, welcome to you. Uh, we'll be hearing the Christian message clearly explained uh, from Andrew Caddick, who's one of our staff workers and also works at a, a, a local church, St. Barnabas Broadway. Um, he'll be joining us in just a few minutes. But if you notice in the, the outline that you've got on your way in, uh, there's a small card that says, My Response. Uh, at the end of Andrew's talk today, uh, there'll be a chance for you to um, fill this in. Uh, and if you want to take things further, uh, then you can do that. So whether or not you want to hand this in at the end, it might be a good idea to get out a pen and start filling it out now, and that'll save some time at the end. Um, and at the end, when we do fill these in, uh, could we all fill them in? Uh, whether we've been here for one week or for 500 weeks, uh, that'll be a great service to those around us. One other very brief announcement before we begin uh, is that the EU is a, a student-run group uh, with elections every year uh, that are open for every member of the EU to nominate any other member for election. Uh, and then we have a, a, a vote at the annual general meeting. Uh, that's part of the annual general meeting. At that meeting, we also spend some time looking back uh, with thanks over the year and uh, learning from it and giving thanks to God for, uh, for it, uh, looking forward to the future and thinking about where we're headed together uh, and praying for that. Uh, and as I said, uh, elections as well. And if you would like to nominate someone more than uh, is on the board at the moment, uh, that would be great. And you can see either see me uh, or contact Dane through those contact details. Um, so I'll hand over to Andrew now and we'll uh, get underway. Getting wide for sound. Okay, how are we going? You there? Well, look, uh, welcome. It's good to be here with you this afternoon uh, to investigate uh, what is an important topic on any on any ground. I think you'd have to admit that the question of uh, whether God exists, whether in fact there is a transcendent divine reality in our world uh, from whom and for whom we exist, or whether in fact there is not. That, that's just one of the big questions in life, and uh, university is the time to be thinking about that question. Um, I hope uh, at least in part to demonstrate today that the Christian faith is not merely a leap of faith. Uh, in fact, it's not really a leap, of, a leap of faith at all. It's not what you have when you don't have any evidence, uh, as many people seem to believe. The Christian faith is something that is uh, logically and evidentially coherent, uh, and something for which there are significant arguments, and I'm hoping to present some of those to you this afternoon. Uh, you may not be persuaded today, but I hope at least that what happens today is 
you go away perhaps a little shaken up, or at least a little more uh, recognising that the Christian faith is uh, not an alternative to activating your brain. Uh, now, I don't know, uh, you may have seen the movie Ransom. Uh, Mel Gibson and Renee Russo, all very good. It's the usual sort of kidnap, ransom and rescue kind of scenario, but it's got a twist. What's interesting about the movie is that uh, Mel Gibson's character refuses to act the way that he's supposed to act in his situation. He has uh, buckets of money, and in the past he's used his resources to buy his way out of trouble. And in the movie, his son has been kidnapped. And he begins by going along with the ransom demand. I think it's uh, three million bucks. He's on the defensive, and he lets the kidnappers call the shots, where to go and when and how. But uh, things go wrong, and in the process of trying to deliver the money, he in fact gets uh, caught up in a traffic jam and so on and so on. And it's a great scene when he realises that's simply not going to work. It's simply not going to work. And he realises that he's got to get initiative, he's got to call the shots, he's got to be on the offence, rather than the defence. And so rather than give them the ransom, he offers the same amount and then doubles it to any bounty hunter who captures the kidnappers, dead or alive, and I won't tell you how the movie ends up in case you haven't seen it. Now, I want to kind of take that principle on board with our question today. Why I'm not an atheist. And what I want to do is kind of adopt the Mel Gibson approach, which, as you look at me, may seem absurd, but there you go. I could be defensive about believing in God, a little embarrassed about it, and try and persuade you that I'm not really quite as silly as you think, or that I'm just a deeply spiritual person, and maybe you can be a deeply spiritual person like me, but uh, uh, either way, you know, it's something to be sort of slightly ashamed about. But that would be to give the initiative away. As though the normal position, the default option in life, was atheism, was denying that God existed, and that any sensible person starts there and takes a lot of convincing to budge. On the contrary, I want to take an approach that recognises that atheism is a very peculiar point of view. Atheism is a very peculiar point of view. Peculiar in that most of the people in most of the world, for most of the history of the world, have believed in God. And so that to not believe in God is actually a very small minority position. That doesn't make it wrong. Don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that makes it wrong. I'm just saying it makes it very peculiar. And you might say, well, all those other people, they were just ignorant and primitive, and we're so informed these days. But that would itself be a fairly arrogant kind of position to take, wouldn't it? So I'm, I'm trying to start on the front foot. On the front foot. Now, from the outset, it's important to understand what we mean by atheists. There are really two sorts of atheists in the world. Um, on the one hand, there's practicing atheists. And on the other hand, there's what you might call practical atheists. The first sort, practicing atheists, are people who are upfront and honest with themselves and say that they don't believe in God, that they think that God does not exist, and they live their lives in the light of that belief. They're direct, they're honest, and they're consistent. I may have to disagree with them, but at least I admire their straightforwardness. On the other hand, there's the other sort of atheist, the practical atheists. These are people who, although they might say that they believe in God, for all the actual difference that it makes in their lives, they might as well not. Now, I suspect that there aren't too many genuine, article practicing atheists 
In fact, a survey we did at Sydney Uni a few years ago indicates that 82% of people then, at least, believed that God existed. So that's, you know, only 18% of people are genuine, rigid, practicing atheists. But I suspect it may well be heaps, heaps of practical atheists, including some who might even see themselves as Christians. You see, when we talk about believing in God, we're not just talking about adding another spoke to your mental wheel, another entry in your dusty list of beliefs. No, what I want to talk about is recognising that there is a God and doing the only thing that you can do in relation to that God, to worship and adore and to give your life's energy and capacity and contribution to. That's what it is, to believe in God. And that's what I want to suggest that you ought to do. You ought to do, and you need really good reasons not to do it. So, given that, that I'm, I'm trying to stay on the front foot here, and I think the ball is in the court of the atheist, the minority, who need to justify their position, I thought I'd start out by helping out the atheists, and by taking a look at the best reasons, the most powerful reasons given for atheism. Since if those don't work, if it can't make its case at its most powerful, then it's a position in trouble. And in a way that is a little closer to home, um, if you yourself are an atheist and you can't make your case at the point where it's strongest, then you yourself are in trouble and may need to rethink. So what we're going to do is uh, look first, what you'll see on the outline there, the first point is what atheists say about God, and then turn the tables and look a little bit briefly at what God says about atheists, and then perhaps most importantly what God has done for atheists before drawing some conclusions. Well, the two best shots in the atheist bag are, first, that you can't kick God, and second, that he seems to kick right back. Let me explain those two things. Firstly, you can't kick God. What I mean by uh, the fact that you can't kick God is that you can't see God. You can't shake his hand, you can't slap him on the back, or perhaps if you're feeling hostile, you can't kick him in the shins, if that's what you want to do. You can't run scientific tests to see what he's made of. You can't do a psychological examination to see if he's sane. And what's more, while we can't keep God, we can keep just about everything else. Through science and technology, we are able to explain now an unprecedented number of things about our physical universe, the world we live in. And so we don't even need God to fill in the gaps anymore, says the atheist. There simply aren't very many gaps left to fill in. Now, there are a few things that uh, I want to say about this. The first is, of course you can't keep God. Of course you can't keep God. Of course you can't run scientific tests on him. Of course he's not just like everything else. All the things that we can keep and experiment on are finite and limited and controllable. And if there's one thing that's true about God, it's that he's not limited by space or time or weakness or fragility. He can't be outsmarted by his own creatures. That's why he's not visible or subject to scientific tests, as though we could stand in judgment over him. Of course you can't keep God. Of course he's invisible and beyond our control. The second thing to say is that uh, even though he's not kickable, in that he's far greater than to be limited by time and space in the context of our investigations, there is plenty of evidence 
plenty of evidence of the exercise of his great power. God's power and majesty are apparent everywhere around us. Uh, whether you're into the great outdoors and have, as I have done, gaze down at the Blue Mountains, down the Megalong Valley, and have seen the light streaming through the trees, and thought that, that there has got to be more than merely this physical thing, but this is so transcendently gorgeous that it's a gift from God. Or whether you're a parent, I, I suspect there are many there, but it may happen to you, as it has happened to me, who's experienced the wonder of childbirth, that from a few microscopic cells should grow a life so intricate and perfect that it knows to the second when to start breathing, and you thank God for it, almost as a reflex, because you know it comes from somewhere. Or whether you've known in your own experience the power of love and relationships and forgiveness, and you've seen and felt God at work, these are evidences of the reality and power of God in the world. You know that these are not just chance things. They come from the goodness of God, God's heart. In fact, at the moment, there's a branch of philosophical and theoretical science uh, by major high-powered academics that's grappling with the origin and nature of the universe. The origin of the universe, in particular, that it's not eternal. That it's not eternal, but came into being in what we call the Big Bang. And that that requires a cause because the Big Bang is not self-causing. And there is no explanation for it. A cause that's transcendent. And at the same time, that the universe is so unimaginably finely balanced, unimaginably finely balanced, in such a way to create life that we can be, that it just reeks of design. It stinks of design. And therefore of a designer, an intelligent and personal transcendent cause. And these constitute substantial arguments for the existence of God. There's great evidence of his power. To deny this, one might have said, is like finding a clock washed up on a beach and saying that it just constructed itself by a process of random evolution over a few billion years. That takes far more faith, it seems to me. Far more faith. And it's pretty much a leap in the dark compared to believing in God. Uh, I said, of course you can't kick God, and in fact there is great evidence, strong evidence, that's worth looking into, the arguments for the existence of God. But the third thing is that in fact he was kickable. You just weren't around when the opportunity was available. That is, when God turned up, when he sent his own son, Jesus of Nazareth, to the world to decisively reveal who he was, it was quite possible to see God in human form. And in fact, many of those did see him at the time and worshipped him as God, as they ought. You're just a couple of thousand years behind the times. That's all. But there's no reason to say, therefore, that no one has ever seen God. What's more, and it's kind of interesting, kicking was the main response to Jesus that many people did make. In his case, string him up on a cross to die by crucifixion. And you might like to think just for a moment why it is that that was the response that God got when he turned up. Now to say that God doesn't exist because you've never seen him is not really a problem to God. The problem lies in the date on your birth certificate. With respect, I think the first argument 
is actually a bit of a fizzer. Well, the second one is not. That is that God seems to kick right back. What I mean by that is that there is just so much suffering in the world. There is just so much pain and evil and that God seems to do so little about it that it seems like God, if he is there, is just kicking us around like a soccer ball. From the global disasters that we see uh, repeatedly, night after night after night, out there, to the personal disasters that we seem to find ourselves in day after day after day in here. You may not have experienced the dark and tragic side of life yet. Although let me say that suffering is no respecter of youth. And you may well know what it is to feel despair of life and death. For me, I've been relatively untouched. A little while ago, my 11-month-old nephew was dropped down some concrete stairs by his aunt um, on the other side of the family, I just hasten to point out, <laughs> uh, and suffered three fractures to the back of his skull, just above the brain stem, which is a lousy place to crack his skull, let me just say. As it turns out, he's okay. But it was a terrible scare and a, a potentially uh, pointless, I mean a pointless and potentially tragic accident, and it could have been much worse. You see it on a global scale of poverty and the famine. And that's the kind of world that we live in, isn't it? That's the kind of world that we live in. What are we to make of this? If there was a God, how could he simply sit back and let it happen? Let me say that this, if this is a genuine problem. This is a real challenge. I think far more substantial than the first one. This is a genuine challenge. And in fact, in fact uh, it cuts deepest into the soul of someone who believes in God. What's well, not like I've got a knockdown argument in response to that, or a simple explanation. Of course, simple explanations to deep problems are almost always a conjure bark, aren't they? And uh, that's not what I'm here to do. But I would say three things. First, it seems to me that you only feel the force of the problem if you think things should be different. You get that? You only feel the force of the problem if you think things should be different. Uh, for atheists, for genuine atheists who think that everything and every person, the entire show, is just rearranged, primordial sludge, that's all we are, the random distribution of particles, so that some form, you know, comfortable chairs and other forms, other bits of particles form, light projectors, data projectors, and some forms of people, but it's all just essentially the same stuff, then there really is no problem of suffering and evil. The fact that some primordial sludge lasts longer and has a better time of it, well, that's just one of those things. It's not a problem, it's just the way it is. Now, if you think there's a problem, if you think that things ought to be different, if you think that people matter, if you think that people matter more than bricks and ants, then it seems to me you're close to saying that there is a God who gives meaning and value to things. The second thing to say is that it's not as though God is doing nothing about the situation. His purpose, his fixed and determined purpose revealed in Jesus is to defeat all evil, to put away all suffering, to eliminate the very cause of tears 
to end all pain and to remake the world the way it was meant to be. That he might be slower than you or I would like. And that you and I can't understand why he would delay is one thing. But that he is callously indifferent to it is just not true. If, if your heart, fickle and inconsistent though it is, cries out against the injustice and the pain of evil, how much more does God's heart, one of pure and undiluted compassion? The third thing to say is that he's not indifferent because he knows the experience of the pain of suffering and unjust evil from the inside. The Christian claim is that Jesus suffered as much as any person and more unjustly than any person. For he was a man of inexhaustible love and truth and goodness and yet was murdered on a cross. There's deep mystery here in this problem of suffering. But the solution is not to rant against God and to claim that he doesn't exist. It's to know the comfort that he can provide because he knows firsthand the kind of pain that you're experiencing. Well, what we've done so far is to look at the two best shots that atheists have got, in particular the two arguments that are commonly made that God is invisible, we can't see and test him, and uh, the problem of suffering. And I've said, in, in a way, I don't think that what they do is push you towards denying the existence of God. In fact, what they do is they push you towards a God who is full of compassion. What about God? What does God say to atheists? Well, the hard fact of the matter is that God is not very flattering when it comes to atheists, which is kind of hardly surprising. If it's true that the evidence of God's power and wisdom and activity are there to be seen, then there can only be one conclusion about those who deny his existence. Let me read to you from the Bible. It's from a song in the Bible, Psalm 14. Don't get offended by this, okay? Fools say in their heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat my people up as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? And so on and so on. You see how it starts? It starts with a directness that's appropriate to poetry. It's fools who say in their hearts, there is no God. The writer is taking up the Mel Gibson approach from Ransom, seizing the initiative and saying, it's perfectly obvious that God exists. And that if you think there's no God, if you can't see God, that's because you've got your eyes closed. The reason that you don't see God is because you don't want to. What's more, the author goes on and points to, in fact, an even deeper reality. If you're someone who doesn't believe in God, or who might as well not believe in God for all the difference it makes in your life, then what God says to you is that that, that is not the result of an impartial, rational decision. Weighing up the evidence and drawing your conclusions. But rather that's something in which you have a deep, personal investment and commitment. You see, see, that's why it goes on. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise who seek after God. 
They have all gone astray is the conclusion. They are all alike of us. There is no one who does good. No, not one. You see what Frank said? To deny the existence of God, that decision is deeply tied up with the desire to live your life independently of God and his will and his claims. To determine for yourself what is right is what is right and wrong. And see, if there's no God, the happy conclusion there is that what's right for you is right for you, and what's wrong for you is wrong for you. And you can just kind of get on living your life your own way. But if there is a God, if there is, then what's right for you might be wrong for him. And that means you've got to do something about it and change your ways. And so out of convenience, you see, the psalmist says, we just kind of erase God from the picture. So you see this kind of self-interested decision-making going on all the time. I have a friend that used to be a Christian, used to days until he got a job and earned some money and experienced the indulgence that money could bring, the independence, the sense of self. And suddenly, suddenly, coincidentally, problems and arguments against the existence of God, which had never troubled him up till then, suddenly they take on a new cogency, a new power, until eventually he just rationalised God out of his so-called freedom, which of course was nothing really much more than an addiction to himself. We love to think of ourselves as impartial, unbiased observers, like a mutual referee. But the fact of the matter is that we've taken the field as players here, with all the bias that that involves, and there are only two teams that you can be on. You see, you've got to ask yourself, if you're an atheist, practicing or practical, you've got to ask yourself whether your problems with the existence of God and his claim to occupy the central place in your life, whether your objections and questions really are to get closer to the truth, to come to a deeper understanding of life and the universe, which is an important matter of intellectual integrity, let me say. Or in fact, whether they're a way of keeping the truth at a distance, of adding one more excuse to an already impressive lift that enables you to live without reference to anything outside of yourself. What I'm saying is, for most people, I suspect that it's more to do with the second than it is to do with the first. Well, what has God done for atheists? So far we've looked at what God, what atheists say about God and what God says about atheists. What has God done for atheists? Given this situation of people who close their eyes and say that they can't see God and think that this is somehow a valid point, how might you expect God to respond? As the psalm puts it, as, as I read, God looks down from heaven on humankind and sees people who become his enemies. And part of that enmity is to deny his existence. How would you expect God to respond to his enemies? How do you respond to your enemies? Well, God knows only one way to respond to enemies. He loves them. He loves his enemies. He reveals himself to them. He shows what he's like. He discloses himself, which is always a gift, isn't it? 
when someone shows you what they're like. And he does it at great personal cost to himself. He sent his own son, Jesus, to come into the world and to take upon himself the pain and frustration and discomfort that goes along with life outside of heaven. Jesus of Nazareth was not just another baby born at an inconvenient moment in the first century equivalent of the back of a taxi. He was nothing less than God's own son. God's own son who bore the family likeness, who lived from eternity with the Father and knew him intimately and at first hand, and who would come to tell us and to show us the heart of God. On any fair reading of the Gospel accounts of Jesus of Nazareth, you have to say that this man lived a transcendent life. His heart beat with the rhythm of love and hope. He showed that in his compassion for those who were defeated by life, as he healed people, as he fed people, as he taught them of a God who could be their Father in heaven and not their judge to hell. But second, he doesn't just reveal himself to his enemies. He does all that is necessary for an amnesty, for a reconciliation. When two parties are at loggerheads, when two parties are enemies, like in the psalm, what's needed is a mediator. Someone who knows both and understands both. A go-between, a peacemaker. The Christian claim is that Jesus is not only the revealer of God, but is a mediator from God. In his death on the cross, Jesus took our place before God. Took our place as rebels and self-servers. And took unto himself the judgment that we deserve for our rebellion. He took it unto himself and took it to hell. So that you and I don't have to do that. And third, not only does Jesus uh, reveal what God is like and do all that is necessary for an amnesty, God testifies to this in an unmistakable way. By shouting to the world in a voice that can't be ignored or dismissed, raising Jesus from the dead. See, God did not abandon his son to death and corruption. On the third day after Jesus died, God raised him from the dead and brought him home. And in doing that, God is saying to the world, look, there might be many claims to ultimate truth made by many people and many prophets, but only one of them has my seal of approval. Only one of them has my endorsement, the one whom I raised from the dead. And none of the others who claim to speak for me will I vindicate in this way. So why am I not an atheist? And why do I commend to you also to not be an atheist? Well, I'm not an atheist basically for two reasons. One, and most importantly, Jesus. Jesus has come. And if we say, you haven't read the gospel accounts of Jesus as an adult, if you made a decision about Jesus on the basis of a fifth class reading, on this figure who on any terms has got to be one of, if not the most significant contributor to all of human history, on any terms, if your decision about that is based on your understanding as a 10-year-old, then as a self-respecting university student, I think you, need to t- you owe it to yourself to investigate just a little bit more deeply. It'll take you half an hour to read one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. And on any terms, I think you'll have to say that this is an impressive individual, a commanding and compelling individual. 
He's the Son of God, no less. The unique, divine Son of God. Living and true God to show us living and true God. And not just show us something, but to do something about our situation. Reconciling us to the Father. And being raised from the dead has demonstrated above all that he has God's own seal of approval to speak and to act for God. I'm not an atheist, mainly because of Jesus. But second to the arguments in favour of atheism, although it may seem impressive at first, what I suggest is, I think they should lead you into a worse situation. Atheism is actually a very negative worldview. A worldview that seriously takes the belief that God does not exist is as black as black can be. There is no truth beyond ourselves. There are no values beyond ourselves. There is no life beyond this one. There is no hope. And we just can't live that way. No one, really, is a consistent atheist. At least not that I've met. We're all much too self-interested for that. Well, I want to finish our time together by issuing an invitation and a challenge, if I may. If there's one thing, as I say, I hope to do in our short time this afternoon, it's to make you, if you're an atheist, or, or, or a, a sort of a seeming atheist, just a little bit less confident about where you stand. Just a little bit less confident. And to realise that you owe it to yourself to investigate these issues further. I want to invite you to pray with me, whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a Christian or not, and simply ask God if He's there to assure you of His reality, and uh, even more importantly than His reality, of his love and his offer of forgiveness. And now I'm going to challenge you to just do a little bit about that. Will you do that sincerely with me? In some, uh, one sense, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Although in another sense, you may lose everything, actually. If you find out, as I believe you will, if you ask from your heart, if you find out that God is indeed real and he wants you to stop running from him, and to take up, let him take up the centre stage in your life. Of course, you may not even be ready to pray such a prayer. You remain as unconvinced as ever that there is a God. That's fair enough. In that case, I say that it's best not to pray. You want to do that. At the same time, let me say to your hard work, you need to make awfully sure of your ground. If your heart and mind are closed, if your heart and mind are closed, you need to be awfully sure of your ground. That Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That he won't come back and clean up the world and remove all evil from it. Which will include those who still stand against God. You need to be awfully sure. But for those who simply want to ask God to reveal himself, can I ask you to join with me in praying this prayer phrase by phrase. There's nothing magical. It's, uh, you know, it's not an incantation or anything like that. It simply picks up some of the themes of uh, what I said to you this afternoon and ask God that if he is real, he would reveal himself to us. Why don't we bow our heads and have that pray? God in heaven, creator of the world and all that is in it, before you in prayer now, not sure that there is anything more than the four walls here.
If you are there, O God, please make yourself known to me. Please break through my hostility and reveal yourself so that I can know the truth. Now, so I want to finish with an invitation and a challenge. And the challenge is, I guess, to do something about that prayer. Um, it may be that God will reveal himself to you by hitting you in the head. But more likely, the harder you look, the more likely you are to find. And so I wanted to uh, invite you to investigate Jesus. As I said, Jesus is God's amplifier and speaker to the world, telling people where to find him. And it's a great place to start. And uh, I think it's uh, for that end, for that end, that we have these uh, my response cards. And um, will I take people through this Bible? Yeah. You know, I said there's just a, a number of uh, self-designated options that you can tick. This is just a, a way of making communication, saying, "Yeah, look, I need to, I need to sort out these issues. I need to investigate just a little bit further." Um, these, uh, these will not go to Amway uh, or Reader's Digest. And uh, all you need to do, uh, if you don't want to uh, investigate any further, is simply say stop, and no one's going to hassle you. Okay, so that you can rest in confidence that uh, this is a, a confidential and a, a mature, respectful kind of process that you're about to engage in. And there are a number of options that you might want to take there. I guess I've emphasised particularly the second of those five that you'd like to investigate, uh, find out more about Christianity. And um, if you check that, what happens is someone will contact you. If you a phone number is good, personal contact is, uh, is a good way to go. Someone will be in touch with you and just ask you simply, well, you know, what was it that uh, you're thinking that might be helpful? And um, uh, be in touch and we'll go from there. So if uh, people could take this opportunity, it helps if everyone fills it in and it doesn't look like uh, you know, anyone's sort of standing up by filling it in. So if, if you have a lease and you haven't yet filled it in, take out a pen, fill it in, uh, it's okay. And um, that would be a great thing. There are possibility if you make comments on the back if you'd like to do that. And certainly I'll be around uh, for the next little while if uh, you want to come back and ask me for anything or make any comments. I just want to say thanks for your attendance here and uh, encourage you to keep the best going. Thanks, Andrew. One great way to keep investigating, I can have your attention just for another minute more, uh, is that EU runs these meetings uh, two times every week, Tuesday and Wednesday at 1 p.m. Tuesday in Carswell 159 over behind us, uh, and Wednesday either in this room or for the next couple of weeks we'll be upstairs in the Eastern Avenue Lecture Theatre. Uh, uh, and we look through different parts of the Bible to try to understand uh, what God is like, uh, what he has said, and what he has done. Uh, and in particular, we'll be picking up the next couple of weeks hearing from uh, David Starling, uh, who works with the church in the inner west, um, on the topic of, for Christ's sake, Christianity, vegetarianism, and pluralism. Uh, I promise you that will be quite an interesting series uh, and will help us understand what God does with a very diverse world uh, and what it is that he um, has done for and demands of humanity. Uh, so please come back next Tuesday or Wednesday, 1pm, um, uh, and uh, join in that series. Uh, also, to take note of, uh, is it... Uh, Yes, there wasn't anything else to take note of, so uh, <laughs> I wrote a note to myself, but it didn't say anything. 
Please join us for our afternoon tea. Um, we've got tea and coffee and some biscuits if you head out the back. Right, on your way out, please hand in. Please hand them in at the door. There'll be boxes there. So head out the back, turn right, uh, and head all the way up your way out uh, and find some afternoon tea uh, and a friendly chat. And I'll see you out there.